Hey, Snappers. It's your boy, Glenn. Thanks for getting the Snap however you get it. We're proud there are over 70 hours of original Snap Judgment storytelling available for your storytelling needs. And our next episode features some of the best of the best. This episode right here is the last time I'm going to ask for your support for a while. And we really need it. Because we pay the storytellers that share their lives with us because artists have to eat too. And we've made it real easy for you to help Snap keep snapping. Right now, if you would, pull out your phone. Pull out your phone and text the number 20222. That's who you're texting to. And this is what you're texting. One word. Snap. Text in Snap. You'll get a message back from our partner, PRX, asking if everything is cool. Text them back, yes, Y-E-S. And just like that, you're a snapper. Because you supported Snap with a fat $10 bill. We appreciate it. You want to do it again? Go ahead. You can hit me as many as three times a month. Just text the number 20222. And then you're going to write the word snap, hit send. And that's it. Living philanthropy feel good. You, my friend, are a patron of the arts, and I appreciate it. With my whole heart, I appreciate it because this wouldn't happen without you. Thanks. Has someone ever told you a story, and while you were listening, the other sounds faded into the background? You didn't even notice yourself leaning into the person speaking. When she flinched, you flinched. And when she stopped to take a breath, you leaned in even closer. And when she finished the story, it didn't feel like something you just heard. It felt like something you'd lived. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present The Storyteller. Where we get to highlight some of the tail spinners that brought the magic from the very start of Snap Judgment. A little while back, Snap Judgment meetings happened on my dining room table, and there were only three people attending. The Uber producer, Mark Ristich, Roman Mars, and myself. We interviewed scores of amazing people. And really, I only had one actual question. It was, can you tell me a story? And that flustered a lot of people. What do you mean? It's kind of putting me on the spot, you know, this and that. And then, one day, at a coffee shop, this woman came in. She sat down, and I asked her, can you tell me a story? And she said, yeah, yeah, I've got a story for you. The only superhero I've ever loved is Thor. In the new Ultimates comic books, he's this anti-capitalist hippie, and he's camped out on a fjord with a bunch of other hippies. He's got long blonde hair and a shaggy beard and ripped arms and well-defined abs. 
and he carries this huge war hammer that can control thunder and lightning. Thor is the son of the Norse god Odin, and he believes that he's been sent from the heavens to purify the earth. He's very powerful. He's my dream man. One weekend in early winter, I take a rock climbing class in Joshua Tree in the California desert. It's really, really cold, and I have these plans to grill a steak over a fire at the campground, but it was too cold. So I follow the teacher and the other people from the climbing class, these three dudes, to this restaurant for dinner in the town of Joshua Tree. And there's one restaurant in the town of Joshua Tree where all the climbers go to hang out after climbing all day. It's this loud, raucous place. They have healthy food and really good beer. And I got a turkey burger and a dark porter, and I sat down at the counter next to one of the guys from my class. He's personable, and he tells me about the night he met his wife. So I happen to look over, and I see this guy at the end of the counter. He's in the middle of telling a story to a bunch of people. He's wearing a sleeveless T-shirt, and his arms are sort of stretched out, demonstrating a skydive. He's telling this story about how he split his lip open with his teeth the last time he jumped out of a plane. And he's really tan, and I notice that his muscles are pretty remarkable. And he's got long blonde hair and a shaggy beard, and um, he's flying. I mean, he's imitating flying through the air, you know, what it must be like to skydive. In the middle of his story, he looks up at me, and our eyes meet, and I'm thinking... This guy looks just like Thor. I feel my body heat rise very rapidly, and I'm completely overcome. Everything goes silent. The guy next to me talking, all the groups of climbers, the music, everything. It's this crystalline moment. Just me and him. Everything else disappears. And he comes over. I'm a magnet, and he's drawn to me. And he just stands there next to me, and I look up at him. And all this energy is crackling between us. And my heart is like beating in my throat. We talk for a minute, and then he tells me, I have three kids. And without skipping a beat, I just look at him and I'm like, sounds like fun. After all, I want kids. And he says, I gotta go. I gotta meet my friend. And I say, okay, bye. But before he leaves, he puts his hand on my back and this wave of heat and desire just crashes in my chest a lightning bolt and then he's gone and I'm like dizzy and I'm trying to steady myself and the guy I'm sitting next to says nice guy I'm like yeah totally nice guy so we all leave and everybody camps out in the desert and the wind is blowing really hard, and the tent was shaking, and I'm by myself in there, huddled in the sleeping bag. I'm freezing cold, and I don't sleep at all, because I'm just thinking about this guy all night. And the next day, I go and climb all day, and I get in my car to go back home. Two hours, that's my drive. And I'm driving through the park on the way out. And Joshua Tree has this surreal landscape. The sun is setting, and the horizon is huge. The trees are like people, frozen in these postures, and the sunset lasts a really long time. And the rock formations are like 
faces and crowds of people and they turn amber and then pink as the sun sets. And it's this long black ribbon of road. What do I do? Am I really going to just drive back home? I'm going to go back to that restaurant and just see. So I go back to the restaurant. And tonight there's nobody in there. It's totally empty. And I order some food and I sit at the counter, the same place I sat the night before. And I just sit there and wait. And then the door opens. And he walks in. He walks right over to me. I'm so glad you're here, he says. Like we had made a date, like like he was expecting me, and there I am. And then all these guys come in, they're all his friends, and they all order food, and they sit at the counter. It's loud, they're all telling these climbing stories, but he and I are just locked in on each other. And at some point I get up, and I say, it's getting late, I gotta work tomorrow, I gotta go home. And, and so he gets up and says, oh, I'll walk you to your car. So we get outside, and we're walking. And he says, last night I was crashing on my friend's couch, and I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about you. He was having the same experience as me. So we get to my car, and within about four minutes, we had driven out into the middle of the desert. We found this remote place. There were no houses and no cars and nobody. And we got out of the car, and we're making a bed out of the sand. It felt perfect. No one's ever felt like that before. The next weekend, his kids spend the night at their friends' houses, and he takes me back to the desert. In the car, he tells me about this first ascent he made of a peak in the Andes in Peru. And then he takes me off-roading. And I've never been off-roading before. I've never actually seen an ATV or a quad or a dirt bike. But there are these places in the desert, these hilly areas, where if you have an off-road vehicle, you go to these places to ride them. So his dirt bike is like the size of a horse. You have to use a ladder to mount this thing. So he's like, oh, I got to put on my gear. And I'm watching him put on all his gear from, from behind. His back is to me. And he puts on these red and white leather pants with pads and the thighs and the knees and these big black leather boots. And he puts on this matching red and white leather jacket with the pads on the shoulders and the elbows and these long gloves. And then he picks up his helmet and he turns around. And across the front of the jacket, in black, puffy leather letters, is the word... He tucks his hair into the helmet and wipes some mist off of his beard and puts the helmet on and he's like, let's go for a ride. So I get on the back of this dirt bike and I grab him around the waist and the bike is so loud and powerful and we ride around the desert and we do these jumps into mud piles and it splatters mud everywhere and then we get to the base of this really steep rock formation and he points to the top of it and I'm like, what? What do you? No, no. And he just starts laughing and 
rides up it. This vertical rock face, okay, with me behind him. And as we're going up, I'm so terrified and I'm so aroused at the same time. And we get to the top and it's totally quiet. And I think to myself, this is how Lois Lane felt when Superman flew her over Metropolis for the first time. And I'm like, okay, I found him. I found my man. I found Thor. Two months later, Thor dumps me. He and his kids had just spent the weekend with me. I thought we were doing well. I don't understand it. One question keeps running through my head over and over. What did I do wrong? I never get an answer from him. It's just over. I'm hurt. I stopped eating. I stopped sleeping. But eventually, I realize I have to go on with my life. So I go to South America. I go to Japan. I move on. And then a few months later, I'm on this climbing website looking at all the bulletins. And I see Thor's name. And I click on it. And I find out he's been injured. Bad. Ah, uh, you there? Yeah. I'm talking to Thor for the first time since he broke up with me. It was crazy. So time just disappeared, you know? I mean, hours would disappear, days would just disappear. Weeks, you know, months, you know. Oh my God, like it's been months I've been sitting here in this... You know, ICU for, you know, two months. And then the next hospital for a month and a half. Thor's living at his mother's house now. They've modified the place to accommodate his wheelchair, and they've added a room for his round-the-clock caregiver. Because Thor is now paralyzed from the neck down. I didn't know that you knew, and I wanted to let you know before too much time went by, too. He was cliff-diving into a river when it happened. So, I mean, I dove off a 15-foot rock, maybe taller, maybe 15-foot rock. I did a, a one-and-a-half forward flip into, like, a perfect dive, and the water was only four feet deep. Why? 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 I did it because I didn't know it was freaking shallow. You know, I had no idea it was shallow. I've been diving my entire life. I did it because I was showing off. There was a ton of people there, you know? I was like, screw it, I'll do something cool and give these guys a show. And I hooked a one and a half flip. And that was it. Damn. Most likely he'll never walk again. I mean, I severely traumatized my, my vertebrae. That is as close as you can come since I bring your spinal cord. How are you alive? I don't... Well, people survive. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's amazing. What's more amazing to me is that I can still be functioning and normal with nine-tenths of my body incapacitated. And... I know I'm not supposed to feel this, and I'm certainly not supposed to say it out loud, but 
I'm profoundly grateful that he dumped me before this happened because I didn't have to be his girlfriend or his wife and watch him take that dive because all I can see is what he's lost. He's no longer Thor, right? My hands don't work, you know? Half of my arms don't work. I have to help with everything. I have to have help getting dressed, to getting transferred in my chair. So people think that when you're paralyzed, you just can't feel anything. So that's sort of true. You can't feel any sense of touch, but you can still feel all the nerves and bones and aching and stuff inside. Like, I'm in pain all the time. His voice hasn't changed much. So talking to him brings back all these memories of his physical power, his daring, his charm, his climbing prowess. Do you think about climbing and, like, jumping out of airplanes and stuff? Do you think about that sometimes? Oh, of course. It's cool to have those memories, have those experiences. And also, more than anything, is what it taught me. You know, everything I've done was, like, preparing for something this difficult. Anytime I get confused or down about this, you know what I mean? It's the perspective I have. It's, this is what I've always wanted to do my entire life. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the medium is. What I've always wanted to enjoy doing is putting myself up to challenges and trying to learn something about yourself, you know, be stronger than you thought you were or you ever knew you could possibly be. Even now, without his superpowers, Thor is still Thor. Ultimately, the more that I can accept where I am and let go of what I'm not anymore, the more I can become what I'm supposed to be, you know? Written, produced, and lived by Rebecca Hertz. And when Snap Judgment continues, we're going to meet the Buddha, and we're going to witness the end of the world. For real, when Snap Judgment, the storyteller's episode, continues. Stay tuned. that you felt that that meant something to you that's the kind of thing that you support when you support snap judgment storytelling that matters storytelling with the soul and we've made it easy very very easy for you to support just text the number 20222 20222 text them one word snap when you get that message back from our partner prx text back yes And just like that, you've made stories like that happen. It only happens because of your support. Thank you. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the storyteller's episode. We're giving a tip of the hat to some of the people that brought the magic to Snap from the very beginning. And I'd be remiss, negligent, lacking in all honor and decency if I didn't mention Jeff Greenwald. I didn't know Jeff when Roman Mars took me to his place and was filled with books and pictures and things from all over the world. 
and he started telling me about a bowl that came from Ghana and a frame he picked up who knows where. And I realized that everything this man owned had a story attached to it. And as we sat in his living room, I asked him about the gold ring he was wearing on his finger. And that's where this story began. There are two things you need to know about Jeff Greenwald in order to understand this story. The first is that he has always had this feeling, this vision, that at some point in his travels, be it Cleveland, Ohio, or trekking the Himalayas, at some point, he was going to find a gold ring. And it'll have a really special significance because when I find this gold ring, I'll put it on my finger and I'll know that it's a message from the powers that be that my spiritual quest has come to fruition, that I found what I'm looking for in the spiritual realm. So that's point one, gold ring. Put that in your head. Lock that in. All right. Item number two in our prelude is... What happened to Jeff when he went to the Ajanta Caves in Aurangabad, India? The Ajanta Caves were built between 200 and 650 AD. And there's about 20 caves in all filled with paintings that because of the, the darkness and the closed nature of the caves are preserved and look almost as gorgeous as they did when they were first painted almost 2,000 years ago. So I went down to Ajanta and I'm wandering through the caves and I'm looking at all these scenes painted on the wall. And these are scenes from what are called the Jataka Tales. And the Jataka Tales are as well known in India and in Asia as the Walt Disney stories are are known here in, in the U.S. These are the stories of Buddha's past life. Because before Buddha was the Buddha, he had a life of every kind of animal and insect that you can imagine. He was a deer, he was the king of the monkeys, he was a fish, he was a, a meditator in a, in a cave somewhere in the mountains, he was a bird, he was every kind of animal and creature you could imagine. And these stories tell all the different tales of the wonderful things that the being that would become Buddha accomplished in his past lives. So I was walking from room to room in the Ajanta cave temples, actually walking from cave to cave because there are all the rooms are caves that were carved from the living rock. And I came into this one room and there was a mural on the wall. And it was a mural of a scene from the actual life of Buddha, where Buddha has decided to renounce everything. He's, he rode his horse to the river Anoma, and he met a woodcutter there. He traded clothes with a woodcutter, cut off all of his hair. The Buddha cut off his long royal locks of hair, and then put on the woodcutter's simple clothes, said farewell to the horse, and crossed the river and began his quest to become the awakened one. And I looked at this scene of all the characters in this scene as Buddha's about to leave and renounce the world, and I looked at the imagery and I suddenly recognized myself in one of the characters in that mural. And this wasn't just a casual sense of, oh, I knew who that was. It was this absolutely overwhelming sense that I saw myself. I saw who I had been 2,500 years ago during the lifetime of the Buddha. You, the skeptic, were skeptical no longer. You recalled your past life. The scales had fallen from your eyes and you remembered what happened 2,500 years before when you were with the Buddha. I still thought reincarnation was a load of hooey. (laughs) But I couldn't deny that having seen this image and having recognized myself in this mural, this flood of memories had come back to me. And boom, 
Jeff's life changed forever. I didn't know what to do with it. It really worked against my whole worldview. The impact was so gigantic that a few weeks later, as soon as I got back to the United States, I began writing down all these memories that spontaneously arose to me from that lifetime. I remembered everything that had happened to me during those years, 25 centuries ago, and I wrote in great detail about my relationship with the characters in that scene and what it had felt like to be on the banks of the River Enoma that afternoon so long ago. That's item number two. So to sum up, one, Jeff will someday find a gold ring and his purpose will be revealed. And two, Jeff saw himself crossing the river with the Buddha in a painting in the Ajanta Caves in India. So that's two things, but actually there's a third one. And it involves a deal Jeff made with his friend Sally. And we had an agreement. If one of us ever found the Buddha anywhere in our travels, we would let the other person know that the other one would drop everything and come out to see if this were true. We would actually not even to see if it were true. We would take the other friend at their word. If Sally ever called me and said, Jeff, I've met the Buddha. You have to come. I would go. And that's exactly what happened. Sally called me in 1993. She was in Lucknow, India and said, I've met this guy. His name is Papaji. He's the real thing. I want you to come out here. You can't miss it. And I dropped what I was doing, and I got on a plane, and I flew to Delhi, and then I took the train to Lucknow. She better not have been messing around. If you're going to go all that way, (laughs) she had better come correct with the goods. You want to see Buddha. She only had one chance to get this right. She couldn't ask me twice to come see the Buddha. She could only do it once. And this is when she decided to do it. Drop everything. I have found the Buddha. So I arrived in this little town of Indiranagar, and I met Sally. And she started telling me about this guru she had found. And his name, his real name was Harilal Punja, though he went by the nickname of Papaji. Everyone called him Papaji. And as I got to know more about this, this, this fellow, I realized that he really did pass all the kind of internal tests I had for a great spiritual leader. He never accepted any money from any of his followers. He would only accept flowers or candy or books of poetry. He lived in a simple house on a dusty corner in Indiranagar and drove a little Maruti minivan around. Uh, He had wonderful relationships with his disciples, but he didn't have any what you'd call improper relationships. He was a big strapping guy who'd been a wrestler, and some people told me that during the 1940s he had even been something of a terrorist, blowing up trains and fighting for Punjabi independence. Every morning at about 10, Papaji would give what he called satsang, truth saying, where he would sit in a room with his 100 or 200 or 300 followers, whoever was there that day, and he would read letters from the audience and he would advise people what to do based on their predicament. Not only did he give wonderful advice, but Papaji had this great gift that you find in some of the real spiritual masters in India. He could do this technique, uh, I believe it's called Nirdir Dakshina, enlightening with the eyes. All your cares would melt away, and in that instant of, of, of engagement with him, you would see all the way through, and you would become enlightened in an instant. This finger-snap enlightenment 
with the eyeballs was something that Papaji had mastered. And I watched as one devotee after another went up on stage and had their questions answered. And some, for the lucky few, Papaji would look them in the eye and they would break down into spontaneous laughter or throw their arms in the air and, and start just, just singing out of this sheer feeling of jubilation of having been even momentarily liberated. There are many wonderful stories about things that Papaji did uh, when people wrote him letters. One, one particular story really stands in my mind. It was a woman who really wanted to stay in Indiranagar and study with Papaji, but she had this terrible, crippling phobia of dogs. Now, if you've ever been to India, you know that the streets are, are full of dogs, and some of them are very gentle, of course, but others can be unpredictable. And if you have a fear of dogs, just walking to your, your flat at night or walking out to breakfast in the morning can be an extremely harrowing experience. And the woman wrote a note to Papaji and went up on stage and started to talk to him about it. So Papaji read her letter and he said, uh, hmm, you have a fear of dogs. It's very inconvenient here in India. I have an idea, but I can't really do anything for you right now. Come back tomorrow. And when the woman came in the next day, uh, Papaji called her up onto the stage, onto the dais where he sat, and he gave her a box. And inside the box was a newborn puppy for her to raise. And I remember just looking at it, looking at him and looking at the expression of that woman's face and thinking, this guy is like King Solomon. He really is an enlightened master. After I'd been at the um, satsang for two or three days, maybe it was a week, some of uh, Papaji's closest followers came up and, and, and surrounded me as I sat in the lunchroom eating some rice and curry. And they said, Sally tells us that you're a journalist from the United States. And I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a writer and journalist. I've written some books and I, I do a lot of interviews. And they said, well, we have a proposition for you. Papaji has said that he would like to do a video interview uh, that will be shown on Indian television. It would take about two hours. We need somebody who's willing to ask him really, you know, really um, probing questions and be on camera for this period of time. Would you be comfortable being that interviewer? And I thought to myself, wow, what an honor. This is, this is great. And I turned to him and I said, I'd love to do it. Let me come up with a sheet of questions. So Jeff started writing questions, probing every rumor. Was it true, really true, that Papa G used to be a professional wrestler? Was he really a Punjabi freedom fighter? All the questions amounted to really one single question for Papa G. Who are you? Jeff Greenwald was ready. The stage was set for an interview with the man thousands of followers believed to be the living Buddha. I walked into the Satsang Hall the next evening. And the place was just packed. There were three video cameras set up with uh, technicians standing around each one. The stage was awash in lighting and covered with flowers. All of Papaji's devotees had brought him bouquets of flowers, which were all over the stage, making it look like, like a, more of a wedding than, a, than an interview. And we sat down together facing each other. And I began asking him questions about himself and his life. And he laughed and he, he turned to the audience and he played so well off the questions. And he was so clear. And I was just sitting there thinking to myself, this is amazing. How did I ever get lucky enough to be into this situation where I'm sitting there interviewing a living Buddha in front of hundreds of people? What kind of weird karma has led me to this moment? 
and uh, I was asking Papaji about one of the main questions that haunts spiritual seekers, which is, how do you take what you've learned in a, in a spiritual context? How do you, you take the lessons that you get from a spiritual master and bring them into the real world? It's so hard to, to live a life as a layperson and yet really try to have any kind of spiritual orientation. And in answer to the question, Papaji turned to me and he started telling me a story. And I was surprised because it was actually the exact same story that I had seen 10 years ago in that mural in the Ajanta Caves. It was the exact same story of how the Buddha, when he decided to reach the awakened state, had had to leave his palace at Kapilavastu and ride his horse to the river Enoma, cut off his hair, get rid of his clothes, and abandon everything. And, and uh, Papaji just stood there describing the whole scene in amazing detail, just as it had been in that mural in Ajanta. And then he leaned over and he put his hand over the microphone and Papaji leaned over to my ear and he looked him in the eye and he said to me, I think you remember, I think we were there. And he fixed me with his gaze and at that moment, it was as if the entire fabric of space-time unraveled like a sweater caught on a thorn bush. For a split second that expanded into an unknown amount of time, all of eternity seemed like one moment. And I saw my life not as a, not as just a, not as just as, as, as myself as Jeff sitting there in the chair. I saw every place I had ever been and everyone I had ever known as if it had happened at the same instant. And I looked into Papaji's eyes and I, I knew that I had known him for centuries, that he had been there at the banks of the river Enoma with me when he had been the Buddha and I had been his horse. What? His horse. It seemed that we stared in each other's eyes forever, but I must have blacked out. Something must have happened, because the next thing I remember is Papaji's hand on my shoulder, shaking me, shaking me, saying, come back, come back, we have an interview to finish. And everyone in the satsang hall laughing and rocking back and forth, and the, the lights in my eyes, and Papaji laughing, and his hand on my shoulder, and I opened my eyes, and that moment, that instant, was somehow gone, and yet I knew it would always be with me for the rest of my life. After the interview ended and the cameras started to roll away, Papaji and I left the stage. He was immediately surrounded by his hundreds of followers, all of whom just, just hugging him and holding him, tears rolling down their cheeks, telling him how profound the interview had been and how much it had moved them. I walked out alone, and uh, as I walked through the hall and out of the satsang and into the street, I heard a voice behind me calling, wait, wait, Jeff, please wait. And I turned around and there was a man, a very beautiful looking man who I knew as Thomas, who had been to many of the satsangs with me. And I hadn't really ever spoke to him, but now he looked at me in a way that just seemed so intimate that I, I'd really never experienced anything like it. And he walked up to me and he said, Jeff, he said, you and I have never really met before. But as you were up there speaking with Papaji, I realized that for many, many years and many lives, you and I have been brothers. And to make that clear, he said, to tell you that I'm, to show you that I'm, I'm absolutely certain that this is true, I have something to give you. And he reached one hand into the other and pulled off the gold ring he was wearing on his finger, and he handed it to me. I can't take this, I said. You have to take it, he said. It already belongs to you. If you don't want it, just leave it on the ground. <laughs> 
but it's yours and has always been yours from the moment I saw it. I took the ring and I looked at it and I understood what it meant. And the ring, Glenn, remains on my finger. That's the ring. This is the ring. That's it. Wow. Jeff Greenwald, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Greenwald. He's the author of several books, including his most recent, Snake Lake. And Jeff is currently performing his one-man show, Strange Travel Suggestions, at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. I can't think of a better way to spend a night out. Now, don't go anywhere. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. Because Snap Judgment, the storyteller special, will continue in just a moment. Snappers, you know that storytelling like that, you're not going to hear it anywhere else but on this show. You know this. And you know that we need your support in order to keep Snap Snapping. The number to text is 20222. And then type back yes. You've just given Snap $10. It's $10 that we use to make the storytelling you depend upon happen. Storytelling that hits your heart, hits your mind, and hits your soul. Thanks so much for supporting us, because we sure appreciate it. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're celebrating just some of the storytellers that make Snap Snap. I keep mentioning this guy, Roman Mars. He was one of the original snappers, and he currently is off changing the world with his extremely popular podcast, 99% Invisible. You should check that out in a hurry. I still can't believe he's not in the next room, but know this, Roman. Once you go snap, you never go back. This is a story Roman did that lit up the internet in little wonder because we all contemplate what the end of the world might be like. Roman found out firsthand. A few months before the end of the world, Paul Monaco posted this message on YouTube. Hello, everyone. Paul Monaco here. Buddha Paul, as most of you know me as. Um, you probably all heard the news. Yayland, the Sims Online, closing down. The world that was ending was called The Sims Online. It was an online version of the most popular computer game ever made. You've all been wonderful. You've helped me through a hard time in my life when I first got online. But ironically, the online version of The Sims was not very popular. They ended up losing tons of subscribers and changing the name to EA Land, and then they finally pulled the plug. Thank you, and uh, please, let's, let's try to stay in touch. And if not, um, good luck with, with um, whatever you choose to do and move on to. As you can probably hear, EA Land was not a normal video game. There were no monsters, no killing, and although it had some competitive elements, for many players, competition wasn't the point at all. Unlike a lot of other games where you might be shooting people or 
slaying dragons or something. This was a game about socializing. That is Robert Ashley. I'm Robert Ashley. He produces a very popular internet radio show. I'm the creator of A Life Well Wasted. A Life Well Wasted. It's about video games and the people who love them. And EA Land was a video game that a dedicated few absolutely loved. The crowd that it attracted, I think, were people who just wanted to get together and sort of chat, meet strangers. It was a nice place. Over time, it became a kind of intimate, almost bar, like the cheers of video games. Where everyone knows your name. And at the moment that Paul Monaco, aka Buddha Paul, found EA Land, it was exactly what he needed most. My wife, um, had a, a long-term illness she, um, from a blood transfusion. She had hepatitis C. And the last three years or so of her life were pretty, you know, pretty much a challenge for, well, for both of us. And after she passed away, I, I had absolutely no function other than to wake up, go to work, and, and go to sleep again. With, with her illness, I didn't get out and socialize much. We, you know, we weren't able to you know, go out to the bars and meet up with friends and have dinner. I totally desocialized myself. And this game was kind of a way for me to just kind of get back into, into living again. Uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. And Paul began to live for EA Land. He would play it for hours and hours. It was the first thing he did when he got home from work. You treated to a big warm greeting. Everyone would, uh, you know, say hi. And, you, you know, your, your IMs would be beeping along and uh, you'd be inundated with that. Uh, it, it made you feel really good. It wasn't the real world, but his friends were real friends. And virtual worlds do have an upside. Your race, your color, your religion, all that can be totally masked. And you're truly judged on who you really are and how you present yourself. There's no, no prejudice. There's no preconceived anything. It's just... You're really taking at face value. People could really, like, break loose and, and be themselves and have some fun. It just feels really good. But Paul's utopia didn't last because EA Land started hemorrhaging money. The writing was on the wall. The server was about to go dark. And this event, this virtual apocalypse, might only exist in the memory of the players if it weren't for Dr. Henry Lowood. I had just stumbled across um, this project by Henry Lowood. Uh, my name is Henry Lowood. Who is this archival researcher at Stanford. And I had a project called How They Got Game, which is on the history of digital games and simulations. Saving video games for future generations. You know, 50, 100, 200 years from now. How are we going to save that history? You know, like, we've got to save the video games. So Dr. Lowood and his colleagues preserve what happens inside video games. Now, for a single-player game like Pac-Man, for example, this is easy. You effectively take the Atari cartridge out and you put it on a shelf. But saving multiplayer online games is not so simple. Saving the software alone is kind of a barren exercise. If you save the code for EA Land and turn it on 100 years from now, you'd enter a world and nothing would be there. All the things that Paul Monaco and his friends loved would be impossible to find. You need to document what people are doing in these spaces. That situation is much more like what a historian or an archivist would do when faced with the problem of documenting the real world. So when Dr. Lowood caught wind of EA Land shutting down, he had the opportunity to record something a historian or archaeologist would die to witness firsthand in the real world. To see what it would be like when an online world came to an end. What happens when a virtual world closes? The end of a culture. What is it like to be there at the, in the last minute and when it shuts down? 
So the tape is rolling and the last few hours of EA Land are being recorded and the most dedicated diehard users are there, exchanging virtual hugs, reminiscing. The players are typing messages which appear like comic book word bubbles and you hear all these avatars crying and you hear all these coos and moans and the gibberish language of the game called Simlish. And you know, they, they sound like they're going to be bummed and uh, and everything, but it's not like a big pity party. But then toward the, the end of, of the night, there's this radio station that you could listen to in the game called Charmed Radio. And they had this DJ there uh, named Spike. He is sort of the only voice that you end up hearing at the end of the world. And as soon as he starts talking... You understand what is being lost. Hey guys, the last time you're going to hear me speak, well, the last time before TSI goes down. I just want to thank you all. Um, it's been an amazing experience, it really has. And I promise I wouldn't make myself cry, but I can't. I can't stress enough how much you guys have meant to me over the past however many years it's been. It really has been awesome. And, uh,. Some people don't get attached to things, but uh, when you make when you make friends, I'll let people live in this game. It's actually really hard. So, uh, I'm going to play the last song. It's Sarah Brightman and Andrea Bocelli. Time to say goodbye. Hopefully you guys will uh, keep in touch. My Yahoo ID is one two three four five. Why? One, two, three, four, five. Good luck in life, everybody, and uh, best wishes. I love you all, and uh, it's been great knowing you. Take care, guys, and uh, let's just, I just want to, even if you haven't got a drink, just propose a toast to Parazad, who's been absolutely amazing. Parazad, we couldn't have done this without you. Thank you. You get this feeling like being on the deck of the Titanic. Anyone who actually stayed to the end was very much invested in the game on an emotional level. When they pulled the plug on the server, bits and pieces of the world started disappearing. The environment began to disintegrate. The texture on the trees flickered. And all the people froze and blinked out of existence. The actual ending was... was, uh you know, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And the last thing that they saw was basically just an error message, a server disconnect message. And then, the world ended. lifting and that piece was done by Robert Hansen for his amazing podcast A Life Well Wasted Alright Snappers on the storytelling episode I couldn't let them have all the fun here's a story from my own archives and I hope you dig it I'm in Jakarta on a train going out a brown man sits next to me Abram he says he wants to listen to my headphones I give him a taste of that Detroit slum village. He digs it. He asked me, where do you go? Nowhere. Then maybe you come with me to the village. And I'm like, cool, let's go. 
we get off the train. I climb into a decrepit van up and down mountains, clawing the edge of cliffs, top speed. The van stops in the front of wood houses and the people know Ibram, he's the big man. We get to Ibram's house. A real pretty lady comes out and sets up a mat. Ibram sits down on the mat and doesn't move for days. People gather to ask advice, favors, and to talk. Sometimes they leave them cloth or chickens. I wander to the village, play with the kids, eat fruit, go to cockfights, and drink up Ibram's palm wine. I'm having a ball. Then one afternoon, a silver truck pulls up with a bunch of men in the back. They're agitated, hollering. They carry one guy off. He's screaming, legs and arms frozen stiff like a board. He cannot move. The shouting gets desperate, shrill, pleading. And finally, Ibram explains to me, this man has been cursed by a witch. They want me to fix it. Right. They lay the screaming, frozen man on a bench. Ibram cuts the man's t-shirt off with his knife. The man's quiet now. Ibram takes a long swig of the palm wine, swishes it around in his mouth, and takes another and sprays it at the guy lying on the bench. Ibram reaches in a basket, finds some amber paint, digs his fingers into it and splashes red marks on the man's back. He rolls something that is not a cigarette, lights it, and paces around the man, blowing the smoke at his back. Ibram's movements get faster and he's bobbing his head back and forth like a chicken and finally he starts cawing, he puts his nose, his nose sniffing right up against the man's painted back. He's looking for something grabs a clump of skin near the base of the man's spine hard. Ibram howls, the villagers howl, eyes pop in wonder. He pulls a three inch long rusty nail out from the man's back and tosses it into an aluminum coffee can. Ibram, sniffing, bloodhound, dives again at the man's back, pulls hard, rips another nail and another and another, grabs the skin and pulls a long, slimy piece of entrail from the man's back. People are clapping their hands over their faces to escape the horror, but Ibram relaxes now. He's relaxing, the smiles back on his face. The crowd exhales. He helps the young man to his feet, rubs his legs and his arms. Finally, the man is dancing, then he's surrounded with his cheers and hugs. The posse thanks Ibram. They're so grateful. They give him gasoline and chickens and rice, and they jump back into the truck, and they scream curses at the witch and roar away. When the congratulations are over, I say to Ibram, brother, that was amazing. But you know what? I used to do a little bit of magic myself. I saw you palm those nails. And what was that other thing? Intestines? Why'd you trick them? Trick them? Trick them? Should I instead rob them of their story? Listen. Never ever take someone's story.
you've been listening to the Snap Judgment Special Storyteller episode, and you're thinking, that's not enough snap. I need more snap. Well, I'm the bearer of good news. Full episodes, movies, stuff available for your pleasure right now on snapjudgment.org. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else, amazing things are just given away for free. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the merry band of ruffians I like to call the Fellowship of Jeff's Gold Ring. Of course, please give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Beatmaster Pat Masini Miller. You know my stage. Renzo Gorio knows what time it is. And nothing gets started until Stephanie Fu arrives. Anna Sussman, helpfully, she waits until everyone goes through the line first. Julia DeWitt plays darts for money. Jamie DeWolf missed the memo. And Will Urbina had a prior engagement. Now, did you ever go up on the roof of your house to see the shooting stars and find somebody already up there with a telescope and a mug of hot tea? (laughs) Don't call the cops, friends. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting making sure that aliens don't catch us sleeping. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media. In fact, if you're part of the public, PRX needs you to sit down right now and have a huge helping of public media. There you go. Ah, you're going to like that. Have some more. There's plenty more where it came from. Yes, indeed. PRX.org. Now, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could go back on the roof of your house, sit down next to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, unload your deepest, darkest secrets, and when the cops come to take you away, you could realize the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is not a priest. No, you could do all of that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.